You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. I always believe that if you give a leadership team or people in the organization, if you give them the time and the space and perhaps some type of framework or structure to work on their problems, they can manage anything. You don't need hundreds of consultants to rework your business. It's the leadership team that can do that. Today's guest is Dan Norenberg. Now, Dan reached out to me after appearing on John Murphy's podcast and John recommended that Dan reach out to me uh, to at least have a discussion about being on the podcast. So Dan got in touch and we had a wonderful conversation and Luckily, he was able to find time in my diary because I tend to be booked out uh, quite a few months in advance for the podcast. And he promptly sent me through a copy of his book, Executive Ownership, which I absolutely devoured. And we had a wonderful conversation then on the podcast. Dan is a thought leader, advisor and coach to senior leadership teams. He improves leadership performance and organisational results through a system called Executive Ownership a top-down team of leaders approach to breakthrough growth. Now, he has since turned that into the book that I mentioned. And if you want to read more about the book, feel free to go over on my website to Aoife's reading list. And I've put a summary of the key points from the book. Most leadership teams are a collection of highly talented and experienced professionals, yet the majority of these teams don't play at their best. When leadership teams don't play at their best, this hurts the entire organisation. Dan's work enables leadership teams and everyone that reports to them to raise their game. Dan worked for years in a frontline leadership roles before becoming a consultant and has degrees in psychology and criminology. He is a narrative coach, certified practitioner and a certified coach for Marshall Goldsmith's stakeholder centred coaching programmes. Norenberg is a member of the Society for the Advancement of Consulting, the Million Dollar Consultants Hall of Fame and Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Europe programme. What really drew me and interested me about chatting with Dan is this concept that a lot of leadership programs tend to focus on the individual rather than the collective team. And I think that's a really unique approach. And I was so keen to have this conversation with him. I really hope you enjoy today's conversation. Welcome, Dan, to the Happier at Work podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the invitation. I immensely enjoy this podcast and the guests that you have. And uh, it's not only useful, but it's very motivating. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, that I could share with you today. Um, thank so. you. It's, it was kind of a, a funny connection that we had where it was a recommendation from someone else that you reached out to me and we had a conversation a few weeks ago and it was just a fantastic conversation. And I thought, Okay, it'd be great. It'd be great to get Dan. Um, it'd be great to get Dan on the podcast, and that's kind of how we met. Which is, I always like these kind of funny, random connections. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I really, really enjoy enjoy this. So, yes, go ahead. Well, and, it's, and it's 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 let it's, it's, know your background. It's an opportunity for me, but I'm also now definitely benefiting from the wealth of exchanges and experience that you're talking about. But I'll say a little bit about you know, who I am and where I came from. I'm Dan Nornberg. Uh, as you can probably hear from my accent, I'm originally from North America, from the U.S. I was born and raised uh, right uh, in the middle of the U.S. in a place called Iowa, and I studied there. Uh, I have a background in psychology and criminology. And my intention was, was to become a lawyer and sort of revamp um, the criminal justice system of America, very mission driven. That was my idea. But I also realized that, you know, if I wanted to study law, it might not be a bad idea to have a little bit of business experience. And so I decided to work for one year before going to law school. So I went to the great state of California for one year and uh, absolutely fell in love with California and also fell in love with business. And I got in sales and um, marketing roles for a couple of high tech um, dynamic and fast growing companies, which meant that I quickly moved into managing people and managing big aspects of business. So that was my first sort of real taste with leadership. And I'd still be there today, but the company that I was with, uh, we were manufacturing photovoltaics. Those are chips that produce electricity from sunlight. 
Um, the company went out of business. It was just a, a business and in, in an industry that was before its time. And, you know, I'd sold my house. My girlfriend and I had broken up and I'd never been to Europe um, and always wanted to go. And so I took a backpack um, and headed to Europe for my nine day uh, recharge and renewal and uh, got to Paris and Geneva. The nine days were up. I wasn't ready to return and uh, extended the trip for another three weeks and came to this sleepy village of Munich, which felt a little bit like the Midwest. Um, if you will, but it was also quite high tech. You know, you've got BMW and the biotechs and Siemens. And, and so it was really kind of a cool mixture of um, the land and, and the technology. And uh, to make a long story short, on the day I was actually I had gone back to Paris on the day I was supposed to fly uh, back to Los Angeles, I just um, I sort of had an epiphany a, a night or two before that, um, looking back at my life and what I might regret. And I decided that I would be deeply regretful if I didn't spend a little more time in Europe. And so I came back to Munich uh, where I didn't know a single person. I didn't speak a word of German and I didn't have any work papers. So I was just sort of in a free float uh, for a while. And that, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of the, the story about what brought me here, which was quite random, a little bit like our initial encounter. And uh, before long, I met some people that uh, worked for the Siemens uh, organization and they were sort of impressed with my business background and Within a short time, I joined their executive development group as a freelance consultant, helping their management level um, negotiate and sell and present themselves uh, more effectively in the international environment because English was my mother tongue, which was a little unusual at that time to have someone like that. I spent three years with Siemens um, and then decided they'd offer me a full-time job, but I thought there must be life outside of Siemens. Founded my own learning and development company called InVision Learning, which I ran for 25 years. And there we did talent management and things like that. And, um, and that's kind of what's led me up to uh, introduce me to leadership teams uh, through that work. And through that work, I wrote a book called Executive Ownership, Creating Highly Effective Leadership Teams. And perhaps that's a topic that we'll address, among other things today. Yeah, absolutely. And I just finished reading your book. And like the, I suppose the thing really, uh, and this came from our conversation before as well, it's this concept that leadership typically focuses on leaders as an individual thing. And I, I did notice that you did that kind of towards the end of the book where you're talking about leaders versus leadership team. Yeah. And the, the whole concept of the book is addressing the team approach to leadership and how people interact with each other. And I think it's hugely fascinating and really I haven't heard anyone else speaking about this before, so I would love to just dive right into that and, and have a chat about what that means and, and kind of how you came up with that concept as well. Yeah, well, let's, let me just maybe share a couple of different perspectives. I mean, there's a, a lot of good work going on out there around leader development. That is, you know, strengthening individuals, executive coaching, talent programs, succession planning, things like that. There's some really, really advanced stuff out there, which is which is really, really good. And at the same time, you know, and, and if you're a leader and you're looking for some help, there have never been more executive coaches. There have never been more uh, uh, university programs. There's never been more consulting firms. There's never been more leadership models to support our continued growth and excellence. But yet at the same time, you know, we have to look at, let's even take engagement, for example. If we look at, you know, the, the average organization, we're, we're perhaps lucky to see a third of the people who would say they're, you know, fully engaged at work. If we look at strategy, which is also sort of the masterpiece of leadership, you know, only 10% of um, planned strategy is actually implemented successfully. So, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, with it, is, 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 is leader development uh, going to deliver the breakthrough results that we need to manage this extremely complex environment that we're all moving into? And, um, and, and, and that's why my, my approach is somewhat, is, is somewhat different. I, I, I really believe it's the team construct that, that, that it's, it's time to, to, to graduate to that. I think that we're at a crossroads and it's time to graduate and, and move more into working with leadership teams while not letting leader development go, but strengthening and doubling down on leader development. I'll maybe just share a, a short story, how that sort of, how that sort of epiphany or that discovery came to me. You know, I was running InVision Learning and, and, and we were doing some really good work in talent management. You know, we worked with over 20,000 people in 26 countries over the 25 years I ran that business. And, you know, I was the founder and the, and the managing director and the senior partner and probably, you know, the oldest, let's say, most experienced consultant uh, within the group. 
Um, and from time to time, one of our clients would come to me and, you know, sort of tap me on the shoulder and say, it was either the, the VP of uh, HR or perhaps someone from the executive office and said, hey, we've seen the work that you're doing with these talent teams. Um, we've got some problems, you know, in the executive suite uh, with our senior leadership team. And we wondered if you could perhaps give them some help. And I was very flattered that they had acknowledged, you know, my work and our work. And I said, well, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk to them. I'd be happy to see if I could help. And they, there's almost always be a gentle grasp on my elbow and say, well, don't get your hopes up too much. You'll be the fourth consultant they've worked with already this year. Yeah. But I said, that's all right. Let's take a look at that. And so that was sort of my entry, you know, into the C-suite. I didn't, I'm not a, you know, former CEO, although I've run big pieces of business. Um, I don't come from a major consulting company, but I was sort of invited into the C-suite due to the work I'd done in other parts of the organization. And what I recognized, which is pretty consistent, I've worked with leadership team, over 100 leadership teams on three continents now. What's pretty consistent is that when you move into the C-suite, that could be the executive team and his or her, executive, the CEO and his or her team, or it could be a function leading a global part of the business, is that these people are all extremely talented. And, and they're all very ambitious. They're all very motivated. So they're hitting all these markers. But as a team, they're not really operating at their best. It's a collection of individuals. And, and even, you know, HR, and, and, you know, who, do, who does a great job in the leader development area, often they're somewhat hesitant or even sometimes blocked from really approaching the C-suite uh, when they see things because the C-suite is their sort of, let's say, that's their boss, and it's sometimes difficult to make that criticism. So, um, so that became my process about 15 years working with leadership teams, and now with over 100, let's say, experiences on three different continents, I felt that I, I wanted to sort of codify those experiences for my benefit. I wanted to codify what is it that it takes for a leadership team to be really, really successful, and where do they, where do they go off track? And that became that book um, that we mentioned earlier. And, uh, and there's just a tremendous amount of work to do there in that area. And I, and I'm, it, I would say it's become a mission for me. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, I, I, I sort of feel like you're hitting the nail on the head there. It is, it's a collection of individuals and maybe not a huge amount of thought goes into this concept of finding what the ideal team is. Um, and I, you know, I don't have experience of working at that level yet. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's fascinating to me how, how those teams work. And, you know, I mentioned before we started recording that I'm very interested in this, this general concept of fit. And this is what I did my, um, my master's dissertation research on last year. And I'm a, a firm believer in finding the right fit. And I know not everyone uses that term. And for me, it's a, it's an issue of semantics. It's it's finding the right match or the right fit. It's and it's, you know, people, some people call it culture ad, and there's various different things. But you know, I suppose I would love to know or get your thoughts on how important that is at that level of having that that pe the people who are there reflect the culture. Maybe we can dive into that a little bit and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to diverge for a second and pull me back if I get too far off out of our universe. But, you know, let's just take an example, you know, about a strong corporate culture from the past. They go back a few years. And I want to just say a couple of words, you know, about General Electric, you know, which now is going through, you know, as with everything, things go up and things go down. And General Electric's, you know, suffering right now. But for a couple of decades, you know, General Electric was the gold standard for for organizational performance and results and shareholder value and also a, a a magnet for top talent they had a very very specific um organizational culture you know if you were if you were performing in the bottom 10 percent of, of a business you know you were really on notice you were provided a development program but you were you know you were on notice that if that didn't change you weren't going to be with general electric much more and a lot of people think that's you know cruel or inhumane or you know not very European but the, the bottom line is you knew what you knew what the culture was when you signed up for General Electric and that's the point I would make about executive ownership or this 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 process that I have for transforming good teams into great teams and struggling teams into good teams is that you know executive ownership is in part about making explicit what is the culture what are the practices what are the rules of engagement in our leadership team you know, um, you know, it even begins with things like, uh, you know, the, the, the call for resilient relationships. 
you know, this is a this is a this is a foundational point of executive ownership is that we make a commitment to speak with each other in a resilient way. That means a tough challenge, uh, an honest challenge, but also a respectful challenge. And we don't talk about somebody else who's not in, uh, somebody else in the leadership team to somebody else who's not in the leadership team. So I think that so this thing about fit um, is is extremely important. But to even come to fit, we have to be explicit about what is the way that we operate? How do we aspire to operate? What's the journey about where we are today to where we want to go? And then that makes fit. It's then it becomes like cutting butter with a hot knife, you know, because it's very explicit. You know what to expect. And I know what I can expect of you and what you can expect of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's loads there that I'd love to dive into. So, And I know one particular phrase that stood out for me in the book was that the leadership team give birth to the culture in those leadership team meetings. You know, that's essentially, you're setting the bar for how the rest of the, the organization operates in yeah. those meetings, by how you interact with each other. And I thought that was hugely fascinating. I mean, that is, that is the Petri dish of culture. Just, I'll just, sorry for jumping in, but that, that's the Petri dish of an organizational culture, you know? Yeah. I, spend a, I spend a huge amount of time in either executive board meetings or in, let's say, uh, you know, supply chain management meetings, just sitting in the back of the room like a fly on the wall. And then often I'm asked to give a short feedback at the end, you know, 30 or 45 minutes. I mean, these are players on the field doing their work, making their interactions, you know, fighting for the priorities that they think are important for their function and also trying to maintain an overall, you know, uh, aspiration towards the organizational goal. So, you know, you can sit in on a a management meeting for, for two to three hours and get a very clear picture about what's happening in the business because what's happening in the leadership meeting is what's happening in the business. They are not, they're not inconsistent with each other. They're very, they're very consistent. The benefit of that is, is that the people get some really quick feedback about what they can do in their, in their, in their leadership meeting, but then they can cascade that out into their other meetings. So that's also the part about executive ownership. It's a, it's quite, you can, you can replicate it. It's not a, a great deal of sophisticated tools. And if anything, my clients say, this is just so easy. You know, it's just, yeah. you know, it's so, it's so simple. They say it's yeah, so yeah. simple, but simple isn't always easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 100% agree. And it is, there are simple steps and it's more of a framework and using that framework to identify exactly what's going on within that, within that leadership team. Coming back to this concept of fit and, and creating the culture within the team. And I suppose for me, the interest is in making sure that you have the right people there and, and how you, how you decide, I suppose, or, or where I'm going with this and, and what we chatted briefly about before we uh, started recording is this idea of, you know, this is kind of a, what you're talking about is a remedial action. And when things are not going great, then you can put in place these things to, to fix any of the issues. But I suppose I would love to understand any thoughts you have on preventing this from happening in the first place by having that solid culture. And maybe this is chicken and egg a little bit. So you have to have that solid culture, but who do you invite then to, to uh, or who do you promote into those leadership positions and what, what impact or what dynamic are they going to have and how will they fit within that team? I suppose that's, that's where I'm coming from at at, and I'd love to, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, there are a whole, there are a whole lot of, there's a lot to unpack in what you just shared. And then, you know, <laughs> let, let me just share a couple of impulses. And if I don't hit the nail that you were, that you had put in the wood, then let me know. Um, this, this, this whole idea of, of, of fit is, is extremely important. And, you know, let's say, you know, a lot of my work will come when a new CEO or a new leader comes in to a new organization with a new team. And they'll okay. often ask me to help them with a quick start. And that's not, that's not about, and my work isn't about um, evaluating the people in that team and telling him or her whether they should keep those people or not. I'm, I'm always coming, I'm coming in from a development perspective. So I'm coming in to, to help this senior leader um, get a very quick lay of the land to make a good connection to the, to the culture that exists and the team that exists, and then to help him or her um, transport their vision for the change because that's why they're usually in there. If we take any, you know, top team, it could be an NFL football team, it, it could be an orchestra, it could be a rugby team or a cricket team or a soccer team, as we, as we say in the U.S., is that even those teams that win the championships, those teams that stand out and, and are distinct from, from everyone else, it's not a collection of superstars. 
but it's a yeah. collection of people who have learned to play at their best. So, so, so there is something about, about fit. And I've, I've always believed that if people are willing and they'll answer the call to action, if they understand that leader saying, you know, I'm out to build, you know, the most effective leadership team, the most engaging leadership team that we can, because not, that will help us drive our business better. And it's not a guarantee for success, but it's a good indicator that we're going to be successful. And the example that they set by struggling and striving to be at their best just cascades through the rest of the culture. Now, yeah. if down the road we see, you know, there's some people who don't want to get on board with those program, with that program, you know, then you either have to change the person or change the person. You know, one of the, I think yeah. I use one example in the book about uh, reoccurring dramas, um, mm. you know, about a, about a CEO in this case, very true story, who you know, had been really complaining about a particular member of the senior board for, you know, going on eight or nine months. And I just sort of pointed out that it was a story that continued to repeat itself. And he felt in this case, he couldn't let the person go because it was going to be too expensive. And I asked him what the cost of the expense to let him go was. And he said less than 2 million. And I said, how much better would the comp- would the team and business be? And he said, we'd be 10% better than we are now. And I said, well, what's your turnover? And he said, 3.5 billion. So, you know, and that was 350 million against it too. And was, so that, that's a true story that, that actually happened exactly as I described it. And, you know, two weeks later, the gentleman was asked to go under very respectful terms and the business took off in a whole new way. Yeah. So, so there are times where we do have to make decisions like that, but it's about being explicit um, with what we're trying to do in the leadership team and also in the, in the, in the code of the culture of the business. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like that. And maybe we can have a chat about some of some of those specific actions, because I was interested, like I took so many notes when I was reading your book, um, you know, and I'd love to share a summary on my website as well. So keep an eye out for that for anyone who's, who's listening. Um, I've been summarizing some of the, the key points from the books that I've been reading and the, the, the points that I took away to give yeah. people a flavor of what it is that that uh that I'm taking away, but give a flavor for what the book is about with a view to if they're interested in reading more, then they can read it for themselves and, and apply um, apply the knowledge themselves. So where, I suppose, maybe where do we even start when it comes well, to? Well, I, I just say a couple of things. First of all, thank you. I really appreciate people that really dove in and they found some value and that was the intention. I mean, obviously I wanted to write that to to codify my experiences and to share that with my clients and and new clients. But what's interesting for me about the book is um, I'm going back to it like, like a, like a learning journal. I mean, I'm going back to, I tried to write it in a way that's very pragmatic and that's, that's yeah. usable. So what I would say, first of all, just on a, maybe on a global perspective, what, what I also, I also want to write it in a way that was, was, um, uh, not in, in a deep academic sense. I wanted to, I wrote it for, you know, a, a, a business executive who's either in a senior team or maybe they at some point, you know, running a team of leaders or perhaps you're an HR person or a consultant and you're supporting leadership teams mm-hmm. because it, they do tick differently. And yeah. so that was my, that was the idea behind the tool, which is the book. You definitely yeah. hit the nail on the head with that. And I love that it is so practical. And exactly like you say, for me, with this academic background for the last couple of years, I found that a lot of what I was reading is not accessible to people who need to read it. And I'd love to bridge that gap between stuff that's based on experience and based on um, pragmatism but getting it into the hands of people who actually need to use it and who can take action based on reading it rather than sitting in journals that are fairly inaccessible to, you know, everyday managers and certainly executive leaders. Yeah. And I try to think about how I learned and how I, my observations were about how senior leaders, um, were and how they learned with me and what they said they appreciated. And so I try. My goal was to bring this over in the book. So just on a, on a global perspective, you probably recognize this as you were reading the, the book. I shared a lot of stories in the book because, you know, narratives are really important. It's easy for us to carry, carry a narrative and remember a narrative. So so I uh, and I used I used narratives and stories that were common to all of us, that all of us, regardless of where you are on the planet, you sort of understand the story. Um, you know, whether it's the Indian wedding or the Titanic or something like that. Once you've once you've read that, you'll you'll after you read the book, you'll 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 never look at you'll never see the word Titanic 
and not think about the underlying issues or the hidden agendas in the leadership team. And yeah. I don't think anybody's ever made that, that, that connection before. The second thing I tried to do without going into long uh, case studies, which are also sometimes valuable, I tried to share, I no, I shared real situations that really took place, um, you know, and if it was a sort of a, maybe a critical situation, sort of the names were changed to protect, you know, those that, that shared and were intimate with me to share that. But I did also gave a whole chapter to voices of senior leaders that I've worked with, and they shared just basically uncut versions of what they thought was important. So there's also a way to tap in there. And then thirdly, um, the other thing is that um, I wanted to bring some real content and some real tools uh, into the book. And that's what I did with, I think, throughout the book in the different chapters which stand alone. You know, for example, in chapter six, which we dedicate to, you know, running highly effective meetings. You know, mm. the question is to a leadership team, is your meeting the gold standard? Is it, mo- is it the most effective meeting in the entire business? It yeah. needs to be because if the, at the executive level, if that's not the best meeting in the company, then what's happening to the rest of the meetings? And of yeah. course, there, one of the tools that I introduce is the continuous improvement catalyst, which is taking 10 to 15 minutes at the end of the meeting to simply, you know, ask the question on a process visual you know, how results oriented was this meeting for you and how collaborative was the climate for you? You put your dots somewhere, either on a, on a Zoom screen or on a flip chart. And then if you're the senior leader, you follow up, it's, what's the one thing we could do next week, you know, to make this meeting more effective? That's driving yeah. continuous improvement in a very pragmatic way. That's the way that I work. And I think that's what people appreciate about my style. Yeah. And that was certainly one of the chapters that really stood out for me. I took a lot away from that, probably because it's I could relate to a lot of what was going on there. Um, there was some really practical stuff that you can do. And I think um, at the moment, well, actually, if I can recall, one of the things that was said was the more meetings you have, the more exhausted you feel and the, and the, you feel, what was it? The more exhausted you feel and the busier you think you are because you have all of these meetings, you just think that you're really busy when in fact you might not be that busy. It's just that you have loads of meetings and you feel really tired from it, yeah. which makes total sense, especially in the day and age of Zoom. And when you have meetings, you're not necessarily getting the work done and the, the this concept of circulating an agenda in advance and and letting people know what's expected of them in the meeting as well. So is this is this for brainstorming? Is this purely for discussion? Do we need to make a decision here? And this other idea of you know it's not decision by committee. Give people the responsibility of making actual decisions and informing other people of what they've done or get the input that's required. You know, all of these things I think are so critical, but they're just not really practiced that much in business. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a great point. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, since we're focused on meetings, there are other aspects like, you know, strategy and culture and ownership and things of that nature. But on the meeting piece, you know, if I probe that and, and I, my work usually involves uh, extensive uh, conversations with all the people involved in the team so we can uncover the underlying issues. And then that's consolidated in a, a anonymous sort of, you know, feedback to the entire team, which I call a perception consolidation. And, um, you know, when the topic of meetings might come up as an area or, uh, where there's some, some work to do or some potential improvement, you know, senior leaders might sometimes say, kind of push that off and say, well, Dan, that's, that's sort of a, that's an HR topic that's introduced at the first time leader thing. And, it, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we've been there, we've done that. And, you know, what I point out to them is if you go to any world-class orchestra, or you go into any athletic team that's achieved any sort of, you know, you know, really accomplishment, they're all working on the fundamentals. They're all working on the fundamentals. They never leave the fundamentals. And at the beginning of every season, it's fundamental after fundamental. I don't care if you're Aaron Rodgers, you know, great quarterback from the Green Bay Packers, or if you're Ronaldo, a super pro, these people don't skip the fundamentals. And, you know, meeting fundamentals are just as important as being able to, um, you know, articulate a strategic mission. Yeah, so true. And I think one of the things that you mentioned was just being on time for meetings, you know, and setting setting exactly what you said earlier, like this has to be the best meeting in the organization because that will trickle through to the rest of the organization. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts as well on strategy. You mentioned at the start of the call that 10% of planned strategy is implemented successfully. So 
people's perception of what the strategy and you know and, and I, from the book as well and from my general knowledge a lot of people don't know what the strategy is or they couldn't tell it to you or they're confused by it and I loved that you had a little uh, Dilbert cartoon as well yes explaining yes. that but um, yeah so talk to me a little bit more about about that because I think that's quite a common problem as well well you know with, with a background in, in psychology and criminology, you know, I didn't come through the Harvard School of Strategy. You know, that's not my, I don't have an academic background in strategy, but I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of strategic meetings and strategic plans and overviews. So I, I'd like to think that I've learned strategy from the streets and also so, so from some very good leaders. And what's, what often happens is that strategy is often seen as an intellectual exercise. It's something that requires, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical because it's the roadmap from where an organization is today to where it wants to go in the future. You know, it is really the purpose and the soul, uh, you know, of, of the business. And, and also often strategy is seen as an intellectual exercise where there's a huge amount of work. There's decks and slides put together and it's presented to maybe the supervisory board or the, 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 the shareholders or something like that. And then it sort of goes in the drawer. And, yeah. and, and, and that's just so sad. And then people are left their own devices to sort of wonder how they should operate. And I've always felt that strategy should be something alive and organic. And it should be, you know, it should be intellectually clear and emotionally compelling. It should really spell out what are the key collaborations, you know, how do the functions uh, and teams have to collaborate with each other to achieve these strategic objectives? And, and do I understand the contribution that I have to make? And last but not least, what are the consequences for following through on the strategy? I call it the five C's. And, and, and also often what I see in strategic reviews where I sit in there, they're, uh, forgive me for being provocative here, but almost like a little bit like a masquerade party where people, you know, stand up and they'll present their piece of the strategy and it all looks really, you know, picobello. It all looks really, really perfect. But you realize the person heading this part of the business is behind, you know, targets by 27%. Well, how can they be, how can you be on target if you're, you know, missing your objectives or you don't have a high level of engagement in your group? You know, that something's not right. So that we have this, you have this feeling that we have to present ourselves as perfect and, and then we work all our problems out behind closed doors. And I've always yeah. believed that a leadership culture should be one where you can lay your struggles and lay your challenges and talk about what's not working about strategy. So if anything, that's something that I think I'm, I'm really appreciative for is helping organizations talk about the uncomfortable or things that aren't really working that well with their strategy because then they can work it out. You know, yeah. I've always believed that if you give you know, a leadership team or people in the organization, if you give them the time and the space and, and perhaps some type of framework or structure to work on their problems, they can manage anything. You know, yeah. you don't, you yeah. don't need hundreds of consultants to rework your business. Um, it's the leadership team that can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, that really shines through from the book, you know, from the, from the very get go, uh, we're talking about vulnerability uh -huh. and by the time this podcast is released, there will be an episode where I discussed about um, vulnerability in leadership, but it's not out just yet as we're recording. Yeah, um, but it's such an interesting concept and such an interesting topic and really, really important. And, and being able to create that safe space for people to share, you know, if you're saying, oh, well, actually, you're you're missing your objectives by, you know, you're minus 27% on, on the targets that you've set. How can you stand there and present this strategy as if everything is okay? you know, I get the impression that's not a safe space for someone to say, well, actually, you know, yeah. things aren't great and, and this is what's really going on. Um, and I did like those five C's that you used as well. And something that that's, that stood out for me was this, the consequences. And if people aren't being communicated about the consequences of their behavior, then you can't expect them to change. Exactly. You need to at least have that conversation with someone and say, listen, this is not in line with with the expectations that we have of the the leadership team or of of any team for that matter, um. So yeah, like a couple of really, like I say, I took so many notes while I was reading that book. So there's a few. Well, that that, that, that really flatters me because I know you've you've seen a lot of stuff and all stuff. I'm 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 very flattered by that, and you know I'm so pleased and I can't wait to watch your episode. I mean, you're you're like on the main menu for me now, and I can't wait to watch the piece on on vulnerability that you're going to do because I even opened the book, you know, with a story about vulnerability. Um, yeah. I just really, really, and how important that is. And, 
uh, I think also too, and, and it's very critical with, within a leadership team, you know, it's, it's very, very critical because if you have the impression that vulnerability is a sign of weakness or incompetence, then you're not going to share with your, what you're struggling with. And if you yeah. can't share what you're struggling with, then how can your leadership team members help you? And even, even, even more tragic is if, if I'm in a senior leader position and I'm, not really acknowledging where I'm vulnerable or where I'm unsure or where I need help, then everybody that's reporting into my group is going to begin to model that behavior, you know, and as a result, we all begin operating like actors um, instead of authors. And so I I just, I, that's, it's just a really, really important. uh, It's a really important topic. And when you get a leadership team that can be vulnerable, one of the exercises I'll simply ask people in a leadership session is, you know, take a piece of paper out and write down the, 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 the primary business struggle and the primary personal struggle that each one of your leadership team members is experiencing. Yeah. And, you know, people, hands will go up in the air and say, like, how in the world should I possibly know that? You know, I said, well, where are they supposed to get help? You know, where, where, where are you or where are the others supposed to get help? So, you know, there's a lot of great things going on in leadership teams. Don't get me wrong, but that's the, the whole title of executive ownership. You know, it's executive at the highest level and to own it, that's the deepest level of engagement and shift. Yeah. I use that purposely, which is a little bit of a play on words because what is, yeah. what is ownership? A shift is a slight change. Yeah. It, I think what I would say about the, the, the book and the whole work that I do, my work, work is not about a complete makeover. This is not, you know, sometimes it's just a, sometimes it's just a, it's just a slight shift, a slight yeah. change in the way a team operates about their strategy or about whether they're communicating the vision that can lead to extraordinary results. And when we can excite teams to, you know, really engage with those, their small changes, so through vulnerability and a number of other issues, then it just becomes a, a breakthrough, breakthrough environment for, for growth in the whole organization. Absolutely. And, and building on that kind of the foundation of vulnerability and creating psychological safety at that level, I think is, is really critical. It's so important for building trust in organizations. But I think sometimes people maybe struggle with if I reveal this about myself, then I'm going to be judged. It's going to be held against me, maybe not today, but further down the line. Um, you know, there's all of these things. But if you can come at that from a place of curiosity and a place of support that you're there to support each other. You're not there to trip each other up. And I think it's, it's, it's really important to be able to create those, th- that kind of level of bonding. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the most phenomenal experiences that I've had in my whole leadership career is being able to, let's say, facilitate or moderate or even observe you know, what I call the fireside chat. Um, sometimes there's no, sometimes there's, there's no fireplace there. Sometimes it's in a conference room. Sometimes there is a fireplace, um, but they're very I've intimate. With the fake fireplace. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is very, effective. <laughs> but the whole metaphor around the fire, the fireside chat is that it's a, it's an intimate, it's an intimate setting for professionals, men and women who aren't together because they're best friends, but they're together because they have a fiduciary responsibility to run a part of a business, you know, and and the people involved in that business, which is really important. And it's just a a chance to be, you know, very intimate and very personal and very vulnerable. And um, I actually, chapter nine in the book, I tried to recreate the environment of a fireside chat with the conversations from these, from these six leaders that were so generous enough to share their experiences, you know, publicly in the book, um, because I've seen some phenomenal things take place uh, when, when leaders and particularly senior leaders, you know, really express their, you know, frustration or disappointment. And, and, and that sort of sets a catalyst for the entire team to rally around the change that they're trying to create. And it's just phenomenal. Yeah, brilliant. And I suppose, I mean, another thing that that sort of struck me and you touched on this at the end of like, these are the reasons that someone should not use this process. The, and, it, and it is about taking ownership and not shifting the blame to other people. So um, I'd love to know more about that because in, in some of the examples that you used, I got the impression that they weren't necessarily ready to hear that actually the change needs to start with them. 
Uh, and any sort of change that you want to make, whether it's personal or professional, it, it, the change has to start within yourself. So I'd love to to hear more about that and, and the conversations that you've had with with people who are ready versus people who are not ready. Yeah, and that's a great, that's a you know, super question. And, you know, you learn this through experience, but um, in my old business life within vision learning, it was primarily where we were, our business model was set up that we were like a sort of a trusted advisor to HR and leadership development programs, internal partners. So we were that external partner. And now my work is also have interface with, with HR, but it's more about contracting directly with these senior leaders um, because, you know, they have the teams in which they're trying to use as a catalyst for change in their entire organization. And one of the, I just point out just a couple of nuances. I mean, one of the nuances is that um, what I've learned is that in this process of executive ownership, it's very important that the senior leader take ownership to this change. So this is a recognition that, um, you know, uh, change starts at the top, not at the bottom. It's a team process. And I'm, you know, going to put, take a step forward and say that we should do this. Um, now the team is deeply involved into what the topics are and how you work on things for this change. I mean, in this, in this a team construct, but it's a, it's a, it's a small, but very subtle thing. And a leader that will say to me, well, actually I'd like to go back to the team and see if they think that we should do something to change. I already have a yellow flag up yeah, uh, yeah, because yeah. If, if a leader, if he or she isn't willing you know, to, you know, to take that decision, then it's probably not going to be, it's, it's going to be a continual process of trying to satisfy committee members as opposed yeah. to creating a breakthrough change for the team and the business. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan, is there anything else from the book that we haven't necessarily covered or anything else that you'd like to share on this, on this topic today? Well, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know if we have three or four hours to go, but um, yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just, I'm very excited about this mission and for me, it is a mission. I think that, that leader development is extremely important. We've got some professional structures and processes and things in place around a number of com companies, but I still, you know, am reminded when I take a look at the average, let's say global corporate or even mid-sized company, and you take a look at the amount of investment or money even or time that's put into into leader development, into let's say leadership development. You say how much of that is based on supporting individual development, uh, leadership as a solo um, exercise, and how much of our resources and energy are are focused on helping the senior leadership teams in our business really play at their best. And it's still it's still remarkable that it's about it's over you know ninety five in the individual area and probably five in the team area. So so what I would simply ask you know your listeners um, to do is to also ponder upon that themselves in their situation. How yeah. is leadership looked at in their organization as an individual exercise or as a team endeavor? And how could shifting more conversation, more attention into leadership as a team construct enable them to create um, you know more happiness at work more engagement and uh, more effective organizations. Well, this is exactly it. I totally agree. It starts with the top. And if you can get things right there, it does trickle down and create that, you know, I'm big into happiness at work from a, a not a fluffy perspective, but from a scientific perspective, how yeah. do we create better work environments? And, and critical to that, based on the book, based on our conversation and based on my general knowledge is getting things right in that top leadership team. Yeah, and, sure. and the only thing that I would add to that, just to, if I make my nuances from my personal yeah. experience with 100 teams, it doesn't trickle down from the top. It, okay. cas <laughs> it, it cascades down from the top. It's a yeah, huge, it, 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 I mean, forgive me, this yeah. is my experience. I mean, when a, when a leadership team tries to push initiatives, like do as I say, but not as I do, they yeah. trickle. It's an inconsistent trickle. But yeah. when a leadership team takes ownership to really play at their best and to create an environment where people feel safe and they really address the issues that are important for the business and treat yeah. the people in a respectful way. It's not a trickle, it's a cascade. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's absolutely, any of the actions or behaviors at that level are amplified within the organization. And and you had a really great graphic that illustrated that. Now, that it, it wasn't something necessarily new to me, but the way you explained it in the graphic, I think was really, really, uh, really important. And any any of those behaviors 
are really amplified. So if you can get that right, and if you can get people interacting in the right ways, then yeah, I, I'll stop using that word trickle. That will cascade. Well, well, well sometimes, sometimes it does trickle, but, 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 but when the team is really united on that and they take over yeah. and they're making an executive ownership, it's a, it's a cascade. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think you were referring to perhaps the, the field of consequences, you know, just to, just to summarize, I would yeah. say that my observations and there's a lot of good things happening in the leadership team. So I don't, I don't, this isn't about, you know, bashing teams. However, I've yet to meet a team that's perfect or has no opportunity for growth. Yeah. And, the, and the three areas that I see where there's often a challenge or there's opportunity or potential for growth is about, you know, staying the course to develop a clear vision for the future. That's something that because that's so difficult to do in these challenging times that people sort of then give up on it and they move more into an operational modus. And that's when you have an overflow of, uh, projects and things like that that doesn't really work. The second thing is, is that leadership teams are often very unaware of how their behavior impacts the rest of the organization. They're just, they're just, they're just not aware. And, 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 you know, not even, they're not even intentionally trying to do something destructive, but it just, it just happens by the, either the lack of, um, the, 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 the lack of something that's happening to the team or something that they're playing that's for personal interest and it just affects the entire organization. And the third thing is that very few leadership teams have a systematic approach to continuous improvement. And if you don't have a systematic approach to continuous improvement in your leadership team, how can you drive continuous improvement in your organization? So that's what I would say just in, in summary there. Yeah. And there's just a lot of opportunity and, and um, you know, perhaps we'll continue this conversation at some point in the future. Exactly. Yeah, I'd love to continue talking. And I, you're so right about this, this idea of continuous improvement. And no matter what stage or what situation you're in, there's always opportunity to improve. And I, I think this might have been before we started recording, we were talking about it be, it's not a destination, it's always a learning. There's all, you know, you're not going to suddenly reach a destination. And even if things go really well, and you do make reference to this in the book as well, even if things are going really well. It's not to say that they're going to continue in that way that you have to actively make sure that it, it continues in that way. You need to keep up with trends and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so Dan, the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what makes you happier at work? Well, I've always, my, my, my dream and my vision for my life has been to do, this is maybe sound a little bit egotistical or a little bit selfish, but I've, I've always wanted to craft my life and, and, and do what I wanted to do in something that in a small way I felt added value. Mm. And um, it has always been the case. But I could say that as I've navigated through the years and the decades now, I'm in a place right now where I'm extremely happy because I feel I'm doing something that makes a contribution um, that is valuable and recognized. So, you know, to do something purposeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. So really having a sense of purpose. And if people want to reach out, if they want to connect with you, if they want to find out more about your book, what's the best way they can do that? Well, I appreciate uh, dialogue and discourse on LinkedIn. So I'm sharing regularly, just I try at least once a week to share a meaningful learning insight on LinkedIn. So if people are interested, they can connect to me at Dan Nornberg on LinkedIn. Uh, my website is simply www.dan.nornberg.com. And there you'll find some a lot of resources and uh, um, sort of a repository of collection of tools and things that you can use. You can also sign up for a newsletter there and you can also see various avenues to buy my book. It's available on Amazon, Google, Barnes and Noble and most of the electronic and uh, brick and mortar bookstores around the world. Brilliant. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat and definitely we could continue this at, at another point in time as well, for sure. Absolutely. Well, I, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, being on your show and your po podcast, let me call it a show, but it's it's just really um, motivating for me to listen to your episode. So you've become a, a regular travel partner with me on the way to work and, and going home in the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to get involved in the conversation, you can do so over on LinkedIn. Myself and Dan would love to hear your thoughts or comments or questions about what we discussed on the podcast today. Interestingly, the podcast last week with Paul Walker was all about vulnerability. And that is the first chapter in the Executive Ownership book. So it's really, really important to 
get that sense of vulnerability and do that from the top. Now, there were some interesting statistics to come out of our conversation and I'll weave in some bits that I learned from the book as well uh, in my summary of, of what we discussed. So, in relation to strategy, Dan mentioned that 10% of planned strategy is implemented successfully. So that's a, to me is a shocking statistic. So that you might have this strategy, but either people don't know it or they're not executing on it. Um, uh, and really these issues need to be addressed at the source. And that is the whole purpose of the book is that it's addressing it at, at the source, uh, you know, the source being that executive leadership team. We talked about understanding what is the culture in that leadership team and making sure that the leadership team is operating at its full capacity, at, it, at its best, and, and that you're really getting the most from it, that there's optimal functioning within that because the performance only decreases as you go through the organisation. So at the top, it really, really needs to be a, a really cohesive team. We spoke about meetings and we didn't kind of dive in a lot to this, but there is a whole chapter in the book in relation to this, which I found really interesting. So using meetings as a way to drive continuous improvement um, and it's about the consolidation of the perceptions that people have. It's also a way to drive accountability as well. We spoke again about strategy and how strategy is the roadmap for where the organisation is going. And Dan has these these five C's that he talks about. So it's about clarity, connection, collaboration, contribution and consequences. And the thing with consequences specifically is that oftentimes we find it hard to give people feedback. But if people are not performing in line with expectations and we don't deliver that feedback to them, then there's no consequences for them and they will continue to behave in the way that we we don't want them to behave. Another thing that we spoke about um, is this idea of actors versus authors. And, and one thing that resonated with me then in the book in relation to this is the, the, the executive leader within that team being a decision maker. So rather than shying away from making decisions or looking to get buy-in from people or looking to get decision by committee, it's about making a decision based on the information that you have and, and sticking with that. This concept of a shift then being only a slight change, so executive owner shift, it doesn't have to be a massive change. And maybe that, you know, a lot of times people might fear change as well. So it's it's making that slight change, but the knock on impact of that on the organisation is going to be much, much bigger as well. I thought this was an interesting stat from the book specifically is 80% of execs believe that they have the necessary skills to perform their role, but only 30% believe that their colleagues do. So there's this perception that we as individuals are better than the colleagues that we work with. And, you know, there are, he discusses ways to kind of to, to get over that. Another thing that we didn't touch on uh, during our conversation on the podcast, but that that comes up time and time again in in the work that I do, but also in in uh, in the book, is this idea of the knowing doing gap. And I know I've spoken about this a few times on the podcast as well. So it's all very well to have all of this knowledge and to know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, but it's about implementing that that knowledge. It's about taking action on what it is that you know and not just knowing it. So I think that's that's really, really important. And um, maybe the, the point that I leave you with then. So thank you so much for tuning in today. And as always, if you want to get involved in the conversation, head on over to LinkedIn and feel free to connect with me across the various social media channel channels. You will find me there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.